Drug use is older than written language. What? By like a few million years. <laughs> it's older than humans. <laughs> it is older than humans. Yeah, priorities, man. Yeah, yeah I, the I, first. I heard we we came from stoned apes. We did. The earliest <laughs> evidence of uh, primate um, substance use is ten million years ago. Damn. When our primate ancestor developed a mutation that allowed them to metabolize ethanol. Whoa. So we have been drunks for millions of years. And it took a mutation for us to be able to be So drunks. what's interesting is that this is around the same time that primates became terrestrial, that we came down from the trees. We would have been eating fruits no longer as they grow in the trees, but as they fall upon the floor. Mm. Which, as we know, when fruit, you know, f- hits the ground and st- stays there for a little while and rots, it ferments. So it's believed that as these primates were exposed to fermented fruit, they happened to develop a gene that allowed them to metabolize the ethanol in it, and it's pretty much stuck with us ever since. Does that mean that like other modern-day primates can metabolize ethanol? I'm not sure, actually. I've, Maybe. I've never, I've never seen a I've drunk seen, ape. I've seen like orangutans drinking beer. Oh, Orang- yeah? Orangutans, sorry. Yeah. Where? <laughs> I don't know, like videos of it and stuff. Okay, okay. Um, but so this leads us to an interesting question. With that is actually, I didn't know, that's kind of like a, very much an open question in, bi- question in biology and especially evolutionary biology, which is why do we use drugs? Because it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's, I mean, yeah. But like the, the, what's interesting is that the chemical compounds in plants that cause reactions in us to get fucked up are actually uh-huh. things that the plants developed as a protection against mammals eating them interesting like they're like they're poisonous like we're poisoning ourselves and just having fun doing it well like, and meanwhile all these plants and fungi are sitting around like whoa wait i did <laughs> all that supposed work to be why you don't want us yeah yeah whether it's like amanita muscaria from like a lapland shaman coming down you know through the smoke hole and uh you know, giving you some pee to drink, uh, uh, or it's, you know, like, that's a, that's a very, uh, that's a deep callback. Yeah. yeah deep callback. Yeah, uh, yeah. uh, Ironweed's Christmas episode. First season. Yeah. Called drink Santa's pee. Yeah. 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 S- search for it. Boy, it, our naming treat. conventions were real straightforward back <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Which it makes me think that maybe part of the answer to your question, Brittany, is that like we're tool using animals mm-hmm. right and by tool i mean other people's pee uh, <laughs> right, yeah. where um well no you know like wh- anything wh- is a tool if you use yeah. it to change something else yeah so. yeah well like you know like ayahuasca you gotta like boil it like five different times so, yeah like, it's pretty really crazy concentrated people down. figured that out at all yeah yeah, yeah. So they if- really wanted to crack the code <laughs> yeah. on that one i blame an- ancient aliens right so there are a few different theories for why we do drugs one of them is that it's not that we evolved to do drugs, it's that the drugs made us evolve. And so by harnessing the, the power of nature to change our own chemical makeup in our brain was what allowed us to 
come up with new and interesting ideas like the wheel and making fire. Um, It is pretty crazy that cannabinoids are so variegated and we have special receptors for each one. Yeah. That's fucking weird. We've been smoking weed for probably tens of thousands of years. Probably. All Um, culminating in the invention of the loco taco. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, we've been puffing on on that loud, but it probably was extremely quiet. <laughs> in terms of potency yeah the right vast majority yeah, right, of right. our yeah. um coevolution yeah but the one the th- the reason so there's all these different theories for why we do drugs but my favorite one is that drugs make us fuck more and as oh. we know the nature of mm. evolution is that uh if you if you fuck a lot and then you have kids that fuck a lot whatever you were fucking around with gets passed down yeah well so i, I think that's case by case by both drug and person like I mean, some, I just like to imagine drunk monkeys having more <laughs> sex than their sober monkey counterparts that, and just slowly overtaking out. them. Yeah. I think that plays out. Okay, okay. It definitely lowers inhibitions. So maybe, Precisely. Uh, you know, yeah, I could see, huh. Some drugs heighten your inhibitions, though. Yeah. Uh, no, they, they like, they, they hibbit. <laughs> yeah, they fill you with hibbit. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I, I think that, that, yeah, it depends. Like, you know, you were also saying that, like, they're poisons. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, like, there's this idea of, like, intoxicant. But I think for something like cannabis, you're, it's, it's actually more of, like, a medicine. I don't think it actually hurts any of the biological tissue, with the exception of, like, maybe your, your throat and lungs. Yeah, I was going to say, in. I mean, inhaling yeah, hot, burnt things burnt, is... Yeah. Generally not good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all in the dosage, right? Well, I mean, like, you can't um, die, like, overdose on weed. Um, but, or no one has. No, but you yet. can or, get yeah. scrometing. But yes, but which there, is there is scrometing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they, I, I was uh, joking with a cousin over at a wedding uh, recently, and he, he was talking about how you know he went to get some edibles at a store for the first time, and I reminded him, I was like, no one has ever died of this stuff, and he's like, all that means is that when I'm feeling really high, I'm just going to be like. I'm going to be the first first one. one. So let's talk about what kinds of drugs folks were doing. These are just a few examples over the last, you know, 10,000 years or 13,000. So some of the oldest, like hard, like archaeological evidence that we have for these people are definitely getting fucked up is in Israel in 11,000 BCE. They found beer made from a local grain. Wow. Israelis love getting fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they got all their clubs. They got the ecstasy. (laughs) They do. They're very into X. Yeah. 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 No, there's something about, you know, that region of the world, you know? Yep. And then, as far as I can tell, some of the first evidence we have for cannabis use is actually in Japan in 8200 BCE, which I found a little bit surprising. Very interesting. Um, Around roughly the same time, we see mescaline use in Texas, present day Texas. Um, betel nut in Thailand is a very famous one. It's a naturally growing stimulant that's used widely throughout Southeast Asia and Africa as well. Um, henbane, which is a nightshade hallucinogen in Egypt in 6000 BCE. To me, the nightshade family is some of the most interesting drug use because it's like, it's literally poison. Like all of it is just straight up poison and you're just poisoning yourself just enough like to have glory a fun seeds. time. Like yeah. morning glory seeds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like the nightshade family includes a bunch of foods that right. people still potato. have. Potato. Yeah, potato, pepper. 
like all peppers or nightshades. Peppers or nightshades? Yeah, tomatoes. That. That's pretty interesting. And a lot of people have sensitivity to the entire like plant f- family. I think it's a family. Maybe it's a genus. genus. Maybe yeah, a yeah. genus. Um, but yeah, just like uh, all of those nightshades, sometimes people have like a, you know, probably genetic in its origin, yeah. like uh, aversion to or sensitivity to. That's interesting. Hmm. I love nightshades. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Pizza. Fuck me up on a potato. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Big potato, baby. Um, so then we have psilocybin mushrooms in the Sahara in 6,000 BCE. I don't know why that location surprised me too, but a lot of these finds are in places that were very, very dry for a really long time for yeah. obvious reasons because it's hard to... The Sahara hasn't always been dry though, but no. probably for like that tens of thousands of years, right? I mean, I think 6,000 years ago, it was probably it was probably pretty lush. I, I want to say. Interesting. Um, don't count me on that. Don't quote me on that, though. Yeah. Coca in Peru, 6,000 BCE. Wine in Georgia, 5,800 BCE. Huh. Which I think is pretty cool, because wine is like a fairly, it's not a straightforward thing to make. No. You know? Yeah. You can definitely very easily poison yourself with bad wine, so very impressive. And then opium, uh, I'm just giving some of the first instances of some of these drugs. Opium uh, from the poppy comes in Italy in 5600 BCE. So that's kind of early. That's like the spread of the globe and early drug use. We've been doing drugs for like so long, so long. Um, But we don't really start seeing any laws against like prohibiting drugs until the 7th century with Sharia prohibitions on alcohol. Um, before that, there's really like not a lot of documented drug restrictions. And I think it's, it's pretty interesting that alcohol was the first one to be prohibited. Both It's also like the and, first one that we started doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Alcohol is the worst drug for you. Yeah. And it's the worst one on society. Cheers, guys. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also... Uh, Shahs and the Ottoman Empire also tried to ban hashish and coffee, but it was didn't did, work. did not go well. Yeah. That, that might like, that might be the other other side of it is that you can try to ban stuff that isn't alcohol, but you know, people it's not gonna, aren't having it. Not gonna not gonna be a pretty sight. No. Did people, people like get really caffeinated and really stoned and in like rebellious? they they edited the Shah's Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> Severely conceptual art in front of you know the uh, city square. Um, In 1360, the king of what today is Thailand actually banned the opium trade um, as well as consumption. But that law was overturned once the British colonized it and turned it into Burma. And that is uh, just a you know a glimpse of things to come in terms of opium bans. But opium follows empires. Very closely. It really does. Yeah. So then after the English Civil War in the 17th century, uh, coffee houses were becoming very, very popular. And the coffee house was this, like, this very new phenomena that allowed kind of the highest, you know, elements of society to, like, uh, you know, rub elbows with the working man, the common man. And it led to these very interesting new political ideas that were more about, like, republicanism and, you know, democracy. Interesting. And uh, King Charles II did not like this. <laughs> and he, so he saw these uh, seditious coffeehouse ideas as a threat to the monarchy and um, instituted a ban. And again, people did not like it. Uh, so there was this massive backlash and the ban was withdrawn just 11 days after it was imposed. 
Wow. Damn. Yeah. DA gets the goods. Yeah. yeah, don't don't talk to me unless I've had my coffee. <laughs> oh my uh, or king. And then, of course, there are the famous opium wars in which Britain, France, and the United States forced China to open the opium trade, leaving, leading to just massive immiseration in both China and in the United States um, and the countries that colonized it. So that was cool. Um, I, have this, I have this really this good was, was this mostly for export or were they yeah. just... Okay, so this, this was w- just to liberalize the trade of opium, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Tale as old as time. Yep. While also... Uh, kind of forcing uh, opium on the people that live there too. Like Mm -hmm. you you get, you make that you, you you, make consumption popular in that place as well. Yeah. 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 David sent me this quote that I'll just read from, uh, from his own notes. Um, OG colonialists used what historian David Courtright calls the big three caffeine, alcohol, and tobacco to start trade with um, indigenous groups and then require that they start pumping this stuff out at unprecedented levels to satiate markets, um, like in the imperial core. And also, obviously, taxation on these substances is really essential to European capitalism and paying down war debts and all that shit. So, and here's the quote he gives me. The elites most responsible for promoting drug cultivation and use were European. They could not have overspread the world so rapidly, nor brought it so completely under their domination, without the large-scale production of alcohol and the cultivation of drug and sugar crops, the latter commonly used in or made into potent drinks. Like the Frappuccino. Like the Frappuccino. (laughs) I was thinking gin, but yeah, sure, the Frappuccino. Well, yeah, it was was gin, and then it was also rum, right? Gin and rum, yeah. Yeah. With these psychoactive products, they paid their bills, bribed and corrupted their native opponents, pacified their workers and soldiers, and stocked their plantations with field hands. And then uh, David adds, uh, we do the same thing with the little three of coca, cannabis, and opium. Yeah, yeah. And uh, alcohol was uh, famously used as a weapon by the uh, American colonists uh, against the natives. Yep. We're The Greeks do, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so now let's just do, we're going to do America and like the early kind of drug laws in America. Hell yeah, let's do America. America, America USA. 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 Yo, yo, we smoke on, on that OG colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1890, you could order a syringe and uh and like 20 doses of cocaine from the Sears Roebuck catalog for a dollar 50 return. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um like it really was the wild west. Like you could get these miracle cures that, you know, all the ingredients were just like laudanum and cocaine and like, you know, apple juice. I heard they put coke in Coca-Cola. Yep, they had coke and Coca-Cola, but like before that like, you do get to laws eventually where um, things have to be labeled. They have to be labeled properly with everything that's in them. And that, that starts around, like, 1890. Fucking nanny um, state. <laughs> but before that, you could just have bottles of concoctions. Yeah. And sell them Miracle to cure lecture. everything from, like, whooping cough to, like, you know, uh, women's maladies. And, yeah, of course, it did, because womb. it was grain yeah. alcohol, laudanum, and cocaine. That will cure basically anything. <laughs> Except start- blindness. It may induce blindness. Yeah. but. Yeah. It'll certainly make you feel affected. Yeah. See, that's yes. the thing, you know. It's like when, when you're buying a gun, like, you, you want it to be really heavy. 
just you know so so you can feel it yeah it implies quality yeah or or how they they like make the door on a car make a specific thud sound oh really yeah yeah they they have a lot of uh engineers uh and like uh audio experts like figure out how to make the thud i'm gonna add a car thud to my next beat just, just perfect nice yeah I think that's why your phone is so much heavier than mine. Oh, yeah. I think they weighted it down. (laughs) Yeah. 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 For quality. So, yeah. 1890, you start getting... That's when you get the first federal taxation of morphine and opium. Um, And then you get, you know, these laws around, like, labeling things as poisons, um, having to put the ingredients on them, and all that kind of stuff. Some of the first cannabis restrictions, interestingly, were enacted in 1860 in New York after a string of suicides were attributed to cannabis use. And so in 1860 in New York, they restricted uh, use of cannabis to prescription only. Interesting. Is that yeah. like a generalized New York state or is that like New York City? I was, uh, hmm, that's, a good, that's a good question. I wonder if any of them were in Troy. I don't know. Smoking maybe. on that sad, sad. It was very hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> it was super hard to find anything about this other than just like a one-off sentence in an article that I was reading in like a... Like a journal article, yeah. but I, I, I imagine the at least the 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 practical effect was that New York City, you're gonna like in cities, you'll need a prescription, mm. but if you're in like rural, like uh, Warren County, like, it was New York in 1860. Yeah, yeah, if you didn't you, live think, in the city, you did whatever the fuck you yeah, wanted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so then in 1906, this is like kind of the first like Big Daddy law, which is the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, and so this is the one that completely gets rid of these like secret ingredients and wonder cures. And um, just a few years later, uh, they reduced it to only licensed sellers, which basically meant Coca-Cola and like a couple of other big brand names. So, you Fuckers. know, they brand- they brandified all yeah. like, you know, the use of cocaine and opium, which, you know. We'll do we'll, to weed we'll, very we'll, soon. Which yeah, we'll do, I mean, yeah, which yeah. we do to Capitalism this day. <laughs> tends toward monopolization. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and so then we get the first, like, obviously race-based anti-cannabis law in 1913, um, where California made possession of cannabis without a prescription illegal. And uh, it was very obviously targeted at Mexicans. The first raid after this law was passed was in a Mexican-American neighborhood in L.A. And it was for years used almost exclusively against, like, you know, brown Mexican people, indigenous people. um, And, of course, very shortly, uh, lots of black people. That's fucked up, especially because, like, America and its founding fathers have a rich tradition of smoking on that grass. That's that silly weed. Uh, like Thomas Jefferson grew it uh, on his own, like you know, land and plantation, and wrote yeah, so his, did George Washington. Yeah, and wrote it in his uh, diaries about how sometimes some of his best times were on the veranda smoking cannabis. <laughs> yeah, it was probably really fun. And uh, as the documentary How High proved, um, Benjamin Franklin had a, invented the first, uh, you know, bong. It was yeah. called the yeah. Liberty Bong. And <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. Man, that's, that's a real throwback. That takes yeah. me back. I haven't seen that movie in a while. Documentary, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then in 1914, you get the Harrison Narcotics Act. This is actually when we first see the word narcotic meaning something like narcotic. Like illicit. 
Yeah, like narcotic just means numbing agent in like mm-hmm. the Greek, I think it's a Greek word. Um, but at this point in 1914, it starts getting applied to any mind-altering uh, substance in like a really um, derogatory way. So the Harrison Narcotics Act, a bunch of new taxes, new restrictions on opiates and coca products, um, and it required traders and sellers to register with the government. So um, basically you could no longer like go into a corner store and buy a, you know, laudanum or morphine or something unless it was sold by a uh, government registered company. Messed up, man. Pretty fucked up. Yeah. The state is the handmaiden of capitalism. Yep. We yeah. say it. We say it all the time here, folks. Yeah, this is also yeah. I, I, uh, companies like Merck uh, uh, and uh, I think Pfizer's uh, started at this time. Like all of the the in bear, like all of the enormous like drug drug companies, yeah, big pharma start start uh, like uh, right now in like the eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties, and yeah, they all make all of their money on. On opiates and, and coca products, like yeah. that's where they they make their first uh, million. It's also like a lot of the old money of New York comes from uh, opium, basically. Yeah, uh, it, during the opium wars, like the uh, the Roosevelts and the Delanos, right, who merged to make FTR, mm-hmm. right. All of their money comes from uh, o- opium war profits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was interesting about opium laws around this time is that like they were a lot of these more local anti-opium laws that I don't get into a ton here. I'm mostly sticking around at the federal level, but like in San Francisco, there were opium laws that were directly targeted against Chinese people. Like they were, they were perfectly crafted to be racist laws so that like basically white women could smoke opium so long as there weren't like a certain number of Chinese men around. Like these were actual municipal laws that were on the books in places like San Francisco, um, where there was a large Chinese population. What a great country. It's incredible. We love it. Um, And then 1919, the year the world stood still, the 18th Amendment passed, prohibition unleashed more than a decade of organized crime and danger and misery on the country. Really? Um, It it lasted for a decade? It was was repealed in 1933. That's crazy. So 14 years. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Everybody lost their minds. Yeah. For 14 years. And like the puritanical self-righteousness of like the state government at the time just like held fast through what? Like three presidential administrations? Yeah. Like that's fucking crazy. And all of the 20s, like the roaring 20s or the the flapper, like flapping around and like all all the crazy like parties and shit. That is all. All prohibition. All during prohibition. And so it rules don't apply to the rich. Right. So, you know, they were getting fucked up. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. That's so, that's so wild. It's very crazy. And um, so, you know, we, we owe a lot of uh, weaponry technology to that era uh, between yeah. the, the battles of the, uh, the gangs and the cops, the Tommy gun. Yep. Um, also SUV, the, the prototypes for SUVs and, you know, lugging large things around, yeah, large like, barrels of gin. Yeah, yeah. Or like a machine gun in the back. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You got to have room for that. And all your buddies. Um, the only other law related to alcohol that was similar to this one was the, was what caused the 1791 Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania, um, which was they levied this pretty large tax on whiskey and people just fucking rose up. And it's worth noting that in the 19th and 20th centuries, people were like, like early 20th centuries, people were super fucking drunk. Like they were way drunker than we are. Yeah. Like they were drunk all the time. The average American consumed 1.7 bottles of hard liquor per week. 
which is three times the amount that we consume today. One? Holy shit. Yeah. A week. A week. Jesus. That's the average American. Yeah. That's got to be responsible for like a huge uh, increase in our life expectancy. (laughs) (laughs) That we don't drink that much anymore? Yeah, by by a third. Yeah. Wow, that's... Yeah. And and then we invented cars. Like in in that time that we were drinking like two (laughs) full bottles of liquor a week... Or just like also drive a motor vehicle, like yeah. we're gonna, with like, no seatbelts no yeah. seat and oftentimes no top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like every head of state was also like in this. You know, oh yeah, like, right. Yeah, you know, uh, mold. Like I remember. But we also invented electricity. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's true. And, and we shocked an elephant to death. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Benjamin Franklin was a. Um, a big fan of uh, beer drunk. and yeah. wine. Um, he once Fucking had a, a line that said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, in wine, you'll find beauty. In beer, you'll find happiness. In water, you'll find bacteria. That's funny. Yeah. He, another one of his quotes was, um, God loves us, and we know that because he gave us beer. Yeah. Something like yeah. that, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, like that. but yeah. yeah. Um, Albert Einstein. You know, we also gave an elegraph so much, an elegraph, an elephant so much LSD that it that it yeah, died. Yeah. Oh my god! Keep your eyes peeled for our uh, MK Ultra episode, episode that we will yeah. do sometime yeah. in the near near to mid distant future. We're gathering the documents. <laughs> um. So then, 1930 comes along, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics is created, and Boo. after that, everything <laughs> fucking changes. The the FBN was headed by Harry J. Anslinger, one of the just biggest pieces of shit in modern American history. It basically goes like all of the Nazis at the yeah. top, and yep, then yep. like Harry Anslinger, like <laughs> yeah. right below them. Yeah. Also, he, not a coincidence that in the thirties, FDR guy knows his pot opium. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, Anslinger was commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics Narcotics for 32 years. That's a long time to do one job, I think. Yeah. Anyway. That, that is a rain. Yeah. And so before this, it was really like cocaine and opium were the two like baddies and, and alcohol, obviously, from pro- prohibition. But um, Anslinger really zeroed in on cannabis as a social ill. Um, he was a he was a brilliant propagandist who, who like very, pretty subtly used racism and xenophobia to like whip up public fears about cannabis. He famously targeted jazz musicians, um, and the story of what he did to Billie Holiday is really horrifying. Billie Holiday had written this um, song, "Strange Fruit," mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was it was really popular, and it's about lynchings in the South and like racism and the oppression of of black people. And Anslinger didn't like it. And she basically refused to stop talking about it and refused to stop playing it. And so he um, he arrested her for cannabis use. She was uh, handcuffed to a hospital bed while she was dying of liver disease and heart disease. And he kept her there in that hospital, cuffed to a bed until she died. Holy fucking shit. Yeah. The state killed Billie Holiday? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, basically. around some yeah, trumped much. up pot charges. Yeah. yeah, that's fucking. Insane. Well, I don't think they were trumped up. Like, well, whatever. The she point liked is, pot. She sh- she smoked a lot of pot. It was yeah. legal to smoke pot back then. Like, it wasn't. I guess I I misspoke. Just but yeah, bullshit. Yeah, like, bullshit. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, 
So he really focused on accounts of like crime and violence, very similar today where like, you know, the newspapers print what the cops say about whatever. Um, so he really paid a lot more attention to what like law enforcement said rather than medical experts. Sounds mm. familiar. Um, there was a discussion among uh, members of the American Medical Association in which 29 of 30 pharmacists and industry representatives objected to a ban on cannabis. There was only one dissenter. And that account was the only one that the Bureau filed away. And they just ditched the 29 other ones. Watch us find out in like 20 years that crocodile and bath salts are actually like miracle drugs that could bring about world peace. <laughs> and we're just like... Well, bath salts is ne was never a real thing. Uh, I thought it was just like a slang for like a whole like variety no, of it like... No, like it was like an op. I need to look that up to be a hundred percent sure, but I'm at this point I'd say about eighty percent sure that bath salts uh, yeah, that, like, that were not a real right. thing. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those like a uh, uh, suburban scare. Yeah, things where it was like one guy that was freaking out. Is that the he, same thing as yeah. crocodile? Then where it was just like these like insane no, zombification, I, like mutilation uh, stories where people would like do bath salts and like eat someone on a bus. Yeah, those are all fake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are all fake. It's like the what they, was it there, called? There was the like this, Jankum or oh yeah, oh that's what you like when you huff your own poo or yeah. like, like fermented poop. Yeah, yeah, no, that yeah, that's that was uh, that was, that was made that thing, was made up yeah. by four chan. Yeah, no, but there was like the uh, like the artificial weed, like spice or something. Oh yeah, K two, K two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I smoked that once. That sucked. Yeah, that's got a headache. Sucks. Yeah, that stuff's gross. Yeah. So Anslinger used mass media to sway public opinion to great effect, and he did so with the help of another enormous asshole, William Randolph Hearst, um, who was sort of the father of yellow journalism and like, you know, basically the like Rupert Murdoch, but classier. Um, and so he got what he literally called them the gore files. Uh, he would get quotes from police reports of like all of these violent murders and stuff and then associate them with cannabis, even when there was no real association to make. Um, Classic. Yeah. Move. A lot of people have probably heard of reefer madness. Yep, that was yep. an Anslinger hit. Yeah, um, that, was, that was a video like uh, that was released for the purpose of it's an hour long movie. <laughs> And it's ridiculous. It's yeah, I remember so seeing ridiculous. part of it. Yeah, and they're just like, they're like smoking really hard and then like yeah. banging the keys of a, of a piano. so much piano playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they're, and yeah, everything, the way they smoke the joints is like, <laughs> like they're freaking out, man. Like they're super manic. It's much more like cocaine than, I mean, obviously I don't know what they were smoking in the 30s. So I've never smoked 1930s weed. Maybe it was like that, but I doubt it. I no. doubt it. Yeah, I seriously <laughs> doubt it. Yeah. Um, there was this one guy, Victor Licata, who like, brutally murdered his entire family with an axe in Ybor city in Tampa, Florida. Ugh. Um, his like two, like three brothers and sister and both his parents, all of them. And, uh, Anslinger used him in reefer madness and in a couple of other, like, you know, propagandic pieces to say that he did it because he was high on weed. But this guy had been diagnosed with a severe mental illness in his childhood, which was obviously probably the more precipitating factor in the murder of his family. Yeah, I mean, like, we won't cure debilitating mental illness. No, it it will, in fact, often exacerbate it a lot. Yeah. Um, As well, alcohol, a lot of other things. Yeah. So, he was so racist that... <laughs> How racist was he? <laughs> he was so racist that even contemporary conservative politicians who supported the cannabis ban told him that he needed to rein it in and actually called on him to resign at one point because they felt like he was discrediting the movement to ban cannabis. Um, For being so racist. Yes. 
uh, I'm going to give you three quotes. That's really racist. These are the the cleanest quotes I could find to give you a sense of it. He said, colored students at the University of Minnesota partying with white female students, smoking marijuana and getting their sympathy with stories of racial persecution. Result, pregnancy. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Two Negroes took a four, took a girl 14 years old and kept her for two days under the influence of hemp. Upon recovery, she was found to be suffering from syphilis. Wow. Again, this is not what? like, he just makes these things up. Yeah, right. Yeah. These are all like hypotheticals. Yeah. Uh, Reefer, ma- this is the last one. <sighs> Reefer makes the darkies think they're as good as white men. Wow. So yeah. in That's, case, yeah. And, and that, so this was at a time where America was openly and hella racist like all across the board and, and even and he even, yeah. Even, yeah. He, yeah they were like this is a bit much it's a little guy. too much yeah. yeah um and interestingly so he was largely responsible for popularizing the term marijuana over cannabis and hemp for racist reasons he wanted to tie the drug to foreigners to mexicans to make it sound more dangerous and is marijuana the, the Spanish name for it, or was it just like yeah. a made up word? There's a that... few. I, there's marijuana. There's like ganja is another okay, Spanish okay. word for it. Um, there's a couple of others, but yeah, marijuana is one of them. Yeah, I had heard somewhere that marijuana was like a like racialized word that wasn't even like Spanish in Spanish use. It just it might sounded be, yeah. Spanish. I think the, it the, might. Like, the state call started calling it. Definitely it definitely wasn't the go-to term, even for Spanish speakers. Yeah. Like the plant is cannabis sativa. Yeah. And you know, the ruderalis being like a subset of it. Um, but yeah. But like, yeah, no, he just wanted to find a word that sounded scary. And in fact, when he was pushing for all of these policies, a lot of medical professionals who used cannabis as a treatment for their patients didn't even realize these policies would apply to them because they didn't think that marijuana was the same thing as cannabis. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So that's how little it was used. Finally, one last, maybe a little darker conspiracy about Harry Anslinger that we don't really have any proof for, but it's just something to chew on for you. He may have collaborated with the DuPont industrial firm and various petrochemical interests, as well as newspaper and timber magnate William Randolph Hearst to eliminate hemp as a competitor to both timber and newer synthetic materials that were being used to create nylons and, you know, silks and stuff like that. Wow. I mean, it would make sense why we weren't, you know, because we were at one point doing industrial cultivation of uh, hemp in the U.S. Up until the 30s. Up until this happens. Yeah. There was widespread, like, yeah. Like hemp cloth, hemp rope, rope, paper. It was used for all kinds of things. Uh, Our money was printed on our money was printed on hemp for a very long time yeah Yeah. that's pretty fucking wild yeah yeah so who knows i mean there's no proof that he did it but he was pretty buddy buddy with uh dupont and hearst so and what decade is this 1930s and 40s wow so Yeah. yeah so then 1937 we get the marijuana tax act which tax act which is very very sneaky piece of legislation yeah it required a one dollar, uh, yeah, one dollar nuisance tax on distribution, um, and but it also required distributors to submit detailed accounts of all their transactions. Getting the the, ta- the tax stamp required presenting your goods yeah. for inventory, which was a ki- which was a confession because you so didn't have the stamp yet. Too. Yeah, you don't have the stamp yet. You can't have that. So yeah, um, it was basically wow. duped did, a bunch of people into giving over all their weed. 
do they say gotcha? <laughs> they, like, I think slap, they do. Yeah, the and then, and then they lasso idiot. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um. Let's see. The 1951 Boggs Act, which increased penalties, a uh, minimum two to ten years, and a fine up to twenty thousand dollars. And then in the 1956 Narcotic Control Act is the real doozy. They really upped the penalties, um, including you could get, for the first time, the death penalty for certain drug charges um, if they were associated with violent crimes. Um, It also made it a lot easier to arrest and convict someone because it allowed the Bureau of Narcotics to execute its own search and arrest warrants. They could serve up subpoenas and they could make warrantless arrests when there are, quote, Reasonable grounds to believe that the person to be arrested has committed or is committing a narcotics violation. So when you feel like it. So when you feel like it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But both of these, uh, both the Boggs Act and the Narcotic Control Act, would be eliminated by Nixon's uh, Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act in 1970. Yep. And then... uh, you know, just a little cherry on top. One last thing. In 1965, the CIA brought opium from Laos to fund anti-communist insurgents in Vietnam. Ta-da! So all the time that we're doing this in the United States with drug laws, we're literally using opium as currency to fund civil wars. Yeah, say nothing about the Iran-Contra affair yep. and, and, you know, bringing cocaine oh, into yeah. urban centers on purpose. And there's, CIA yeah, planes. there's so much other shit I didn't even talk about. Well, I, some of it happens during David's yeah. era, so, I, you know. Are you, uh, That's are, my last are, yeah. thing, yeah. The blunt okay. is being passed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. To the left-hand side. Yeah. So so now I my section uh, that I assigned for myself was basically Nixon through to uh, uh, our, our tentative legalization, which Chris will cover. So in my section, I, I thought I would just get it out of the way, like, just state the overarching thesis, like, immediately. At the beginning, which is, you know, um, in 2016, there was um, uh, Dan Baum at Harper's Magazine uh, goes in search for John Ehrlichman, who is uh, Nixon's uh, domestic policy advisor. He is when when Nixon announces the war on drugs, like he's literally at Nixon's left hand, like he's he's there uh, um, he's behind him. This is a big fucking deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and and uh, so er- Ehrlichman, te- this is in 2016, right? So years, years later, Ehrlichman tells um, Harper's Magazine, quote, Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? Do you? No. Um, uh, you, um, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that that's basically this entire part of the uh, of american history not like we didn't know it beforehand but we definitely know it now yeah. that these that these drugs are not like you try it once and you're uh hooked, you're hooked. yeah it's not that it's not I like think heroin is a little bit like that heroin but... might be a little bit like that you know but uh, but you know, like not, in, in no case are there like uh is anyone acting in good faith on right. on it on any of this and Ehrlichman actually went to prison, right, for yeah. like, the Watergate scandal. Yeah, yeah, he he would later. Wasn't he the, one of the only people to go to prison? Him, for him G. Gordon Liddy, 
Yeah. A couple of, yeah. So this is just like one of the very few times that somebody yeah. so close to state power and having done a bunch of like totally fucked up shit has no fucks left to give. Yeah. Yeah. L- uh, Liddy co- uh, comes up also uh, in this um, and, and has a similar, I don't like, just, because like everyone associated with the Nixon White House has had to give so many interviews. Yeah. Where they ask so many questions that like you, that, that, that these people who were, were just like, look, we were trying to like genocide black people. Like, all right, that's what we were trying to do. Like, that's it. It's not any more like confusing than that. Is like we wanted to kill like a lot of people and uh, create a white ethno state. Like, that's it. They're, do mass incarceration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mass incarceration. Yeah. Get yeah. a huge slave population in the prison yeah. system. Yeah. yeah. Funny enough, um, uh, I think. It, yeah, Ehr- Ehr- Ehrlichman, uh, when they find him, is actually um, doing uh, um, uh, in charge of diversity hires for a large company in Atlanta. Oh, good for him. Uh, that's, that's what he does now. Well, you know, he saw the light. Yeah, he's on, <laughs> the, he's on the right side now. I, I, either either that or diversity hires <laughs> at corporations are uh, are hella bad faith. <laughs> Why not both? Why not both? Yeah. Um, so the, so what, what makes, I think... Uh, this era um, even worse than the earlier one. Not that it's a competition, Brittany. Is that um, right? That, that like now I got drunk monkeys. So yeah, that's fine. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> is it there? There's just so much like actual uh, data now, like ability to understand what these drugs like are doing biologically to people that. Um, and we have, and we also have statistics of like how many people suffer from different. Uh, like adi- forms of addiction or something like that, right? So we we can now actually like technologically, scientifically get our 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 minds around the problem, and we just ignore it completely, and like in m- many cases, do the exact opposite of what would be useful, right? So for drugs, it seems like today there's probably about four million people currently addicted to some sort of hard drug, which is like I mean that's that, four that million. Doesn't include alcohol, does no. it? Okay. No. I was going to say that no. number's got to be way yeah. fucking higher. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. Um, uh, there are about 18 million alcoholics in the country. We're number We're one. one. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, but like, but the, the, even those numbers, right? Is that like, if, if you add them together, is like still less than 10% of the country, the country's population. And so. Well, that like, includes children, but yeah. Yeah. But the, the point, the point <laughs> being that like, why why do we why why does the DEA have like a 3 billion dollar yes uh like military budget right yes. it's like for for right you you would think those numbers would would be a lot higher and the war on drugs wouldn't have lasted this long if those numbers were what they were right yeah. it's so, good for business yeah and the reason is that it's very good for business um and that the modern war on drugs is really a system of like sanctions and military actions designed to crack open markets for more uh legitimate um businesses later on and that's uh, obviously mostly in latin america but also in asia uh and it's not it's obviously not just for drug trading it's it it opens the door for all sorts of trading like what we did with the opium war that we were just talking about right um it's, it's always just like this tip of the spear for for neoliberal uh reorganization it usually starts with uh, some sort of incursion into a country uh, to either um, uh, uh, create, take a, a drug and, and control it via a cartel that um, 
that we fund or 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 do or just create in uh, in in some way i'll get into how in a, in a minute right or 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 we um uh will will actually like depose leaders on the basis of them being like international drug kingpins or something like that narco states yeah yeah so yeah the the and the idea of a narco state right is really just a means to manipulate and intimidate other countries into doing what we want them to do and so so here's a little bit more about like how we do all this right and there's that that quote that Brittany read that's how we used to do it right with uh um with the with the big three of of uh uh tea uh um uh, uh, alcohol and tobacco, and tobacco. Coffee, coffee, alcohol, and tobacco. Coffee, alcohol, and tobacco. Yeah, and so now the uh, coca, cannabis, and opium become like the the much more powerful ones, starting in the uh, like yeah, in like the eighteen hundreds, right? Instead of uh, um, all those other ones in like the 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 seventeenth century and stuff like that. So, um, uh, uh. What one uh, to to start talking about the the ones that like happened in the seventies? We have to talk about Operation Intercept, Operation Condor, and then those two in conjunction with NAFTA and the formation of the DEA. So these these four things together sort of start forming the basis of the the modern war on drugs, uh, mostly in its international. Um, character so i'm going to talk about the international stuff and then go back to more domestic uh um impacts because one that's how empires work is they do like their worst things to like other countries and then once they really get like the the mo- the model together they inflict it on their domestic yeah that's the boomerang effect yeah 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 the war comes home so M- operation intercept this was the very beginning of the United States militarization of the southern border, right? So before before Operation Intercept, it was largely an a, a, an open border, right? Where you you know, you'd see, you know you, maybe you check some papers, but generally people walk back and forth uh, across the border because for centuries, uh, you know, people like that. It's a fake border. Borders are fake, right? But <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and, and unless that, there's a man at, with a gun at the border, right, then yeah, it's not real, right? And in that region, just you know, like the work is done all across that border. It's still done all across that border, and now we just like find ways just kill more people doing yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just like a, a toll booth with a gun, right? Is you know how how we use it now, right? So, um, uh. Uh, so essentially what we did by militarizing the border, we, um, uh, have really stuck it to Mexico as like a way to control the part of their economy that relies on remittances from workers coming north, doing work and coming back. We can, you know, we really turn the screws on a, a large portion of the Mexican economy. Uh, and so it was used as a as a tool for political pressure. Uh, and now we get to talk about G. Gordon Liddy, the other um, uh, uh, famous kind of like a Watergate scandal person. He was in charge of Operation Condor along with a uh, a, a young uh, man named Joe Arpaio. No shit. No shit. No I didn't know Joe Arpaio shit. was involved in Operation. Yeah, That's Joe Joe Arpaio was a Fed. Uh, before he just became the really racist sheriff. Yeah, self-styled, <laughs> yeah. tough guy yeah. sheriff that, you know, is locking up the kids and yeah. throwing away the key. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, 
uh, G. Gordon Liddy said that uh, Operation Intercept, with its massive economic and social disruption, could be sustained for longer by the United States than by Mexico. He's describing basically what, in the same way that Anslinger said, like, you know, we're, we just, you know, made opium and, and weed illegal to, like, you know, chase down black people and hippies. Here, here's G. Gordon Libby saying the real reason Operation Intercept uh, was put into place, right? It's because we can do, we can uh, um, uh, police the border much, much for much longer than Mexico can, like, get around that policing effort. It was an exercise in international extortion, pure and simple and effective, designed to bend Mexico to our will. That's what that was. Uh, and, 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 and of course, you know, you know, you get that, there's a, a, like, um, really funny picture of, like, a bunch of cops in, like, bulletproof vests standing around their, 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 like, uh, raid hall. Oh, yeah. And it's a single, uh, like, uh, (laughs) joint. Joint, yeah, or, like, it's a pipe. It's, like, one glass, like, That was, that was photoshopped. Yeah, was it? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that was photoshopped. Well, okay, but the point, the point of the matter is that's basically what happens with Operation Intercept. Yeah. Yeah. Huge effort, low reward. Yeah, even, like, their internal expectations of what they would capture which of course that what they say uh, to the public is much much larger but they don't even meet what they internally think that they're gonna uh capture yeah yeah uh but it did help uh, uh nixon establish himself as a law as the law and order president right and uh and of course it got a ton of racists really excited about being republicans now, Operation Condor is much more far-reaching, right? So, Mex- uh, Intercept is just the Mexican border. Operation Condor uh, goes out into deep into South America, all the way down to Argentina, right? And I think wi- actually Wikipedia's opening paragraph on Operation Condor is surprisingly straightforward and and pretty clear. Uh, Operation Condor was a United States-backed campaign of political repression and state terror involving intelligence operations and assassination of opponents. It was officially and formally implemented in November 1975 by the right-wing dictatorships of the Southern Cone of South America. And see, this is why I give Wikipedia $4 a month, because they're doing the real (laughs) hard-hitting reporting on this shit. You, yeah. think, you think the yeah. New York Times has ever described it that uh, that lucidly? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, like, I mean, an objective view of Operation Condor is that it yeah. is it is a state terror operation to destabilize an entire continent of of nations and call them narco states and and rebuild their and essentially it, it it's like a series of catch and release programs where we uh, 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 um install leaders with all this drug money and then when they start getting a power base of their own in like in the country we depose them by calling them drug lords yeah or like you know like paying contra forces and that you know will actually be drug lords that we are propping up in various countries to like you know overthrow governments and stuff exactly yeah so um uh part the the um uh what the United States told the public was that Operation Condor was based on a supply side theory of drug prevention, right? So while we're also like, of course, putting like uh, uh, black Users bla- black kids yeah. with the dime bag in prison for fifty years, we're also going after the supply of weed, right? So, um, uh, and the idea was if we get rid of the source, if we get rid of the source, then the price will go really high up. 
and then no one will be able to afford drugs anymore and everyone will just be like never mind i'm not addicted to drugs anymore right <laughs> it's it, it's it just doesn't fit my lifestyle yeah and right. you know as everybody knows when the price of something goes really really up people just stop wanting to take the risks in producing and distributing i it. mean i have to say like the it it works with cigarettes yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> like when like states that have sky high cigarette prices have the lowest rates of smoking um i probably never would have quit smoking if it wasn't for the fact that cigarettes got up to be 12 dollars a pack so i'm just saying there might be some logic to it so mm-hmm. here so here's why it works with cigarettes and not with illegal drugs okay is because cigarettes are sold by a cartel a state monopoly yeah yeah there there are right. there are a handful of companies that are allowed to sell it mm-hmm. and they can work with governments to decide how much there is going to be spent on it and you know and, and now like cigarette companies are like slowly trying to diversify into other fields because they know that you know cigarettes are are, are done and because it, there's a state monopoly on distribution at least the licensure for it they can adjust that tax across the board yeah. And make it exactly as expensive as it's going to be for you to curb your habit. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, so what they do, uh, but what this does, right, is um, they're, they're, uh, they target marijuana fields uh, for uh, aerial assaults with poison. So they, they poison, um, they prob- I imagine they, they take some stuff that they learned in Vietnam. Yeah, they right. did, They do some bio uh, weaponry too on yeah. it. Like they 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 put a fungi that is known to um, uh, break down the uh, the stems. Yeah, yeah. So they, they do a bunch of biological warfare on on uh, um, marijuana farms, uh, mostly in Mexico. And what that does, it does a couple things. One, it means that only because there's still high demand in the United States, it means that. Um, uh, only well-resourced, uh, like, uh, organized criminals can still produce marijuana. Right. Right? So, it, it takes this this um, economy that is of just this, like, easy, this plant that's, like, really easy to grow, and you can sell at dirt cheap prices, and everyone wants it, right? Cottage industry. Yeah, you take that, and you just, like, concentrate it into the hands of like some of the most disgusting horrifying people in the world right and then you also say uh let's move it to colombia because mexican weed starts getting a reputation as having poison on it so which yeah nobody wants that yeah so um so a lot of so the mexican cannabis business uh um disappears almost completely except for into the army and the mexican army um still to this day is recognized as a highly corrupt political force that also is like a, a, a parallel narco state within Mexico. And it starts with Operation Condor. Interesting. Is like Mexican state army weed like really good nowadays? Like everybody else. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But it, um, uh, so, so like the Mexican army and the Colombia cocaine cartels uh, start picking up marijuana. Um, meanwhile, um, in uh, the United States, uh, all research on marijuana, like whether or not it's uh, how bad it is for you, how much you should take, what what it does to you, all that stuff, is, um, uh, uh, you know, because you can't sell it or possess it, you can't do any legal research on it. The only way you can do legal research on it is to buy it from uh, the University of Mississippi. The University of Mississippi, for 50 years... And only, I think, last year, 
this stopped being the case. Um, but uh, you could only get marijuana from the University of Mississippi's, like, um, uh, uh, I forgot what the name of the, the program is. But there's, like, a single facility, for the most part run by one guy that for the whole time, that um, uh, was the only place that you could get weed to do legal research on it. And he would basically never let you use his weed. So <laughs> That, what an asshole. Yeah. He's bogarting his stash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, the, uh, uh, right. So the, w- now, uh, so that's why, you know, like no one ever knows like anything about, about weed and you can't do it. You can't, you can't, you can never do any research. You on can't it. disprove any yeah. of the talking points that right. are used to yeah. ban it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also, um, Reagan. Um, so now we're in the Reagan era, uh, for, for international stuff. Right. Um, uh, uh, signs the national security decision directive two, two, one. He issues that on April 8th, 1986. Uh, th- this uh, this was a classified document that's only uh, been declassified uh, fairly recently. Um, the, and the, and this, uh, this document's purpose was to, quote, identify the impact of international narcotics trade upon U.S. national security. Right? So this is when uh, drug, the war on drugs um, really gets, like, f- completely folded into our like dirty wars in south america and so all throughout central and south america intelligence agencies uh and the pentagon would prop up the, those narco states that we've been talking about and then usually destroy them when they became less than useful uh and the point is to create yeah this like cycle of puppet dictatorial regimes that um uh can't amass any sort of local popular power uh, uh, uh and if they do um we we depose them usually with the blessing of the international community because we've spent all this time restricting research on drugs right. and telling everyone that these are evil people because they are but they're our evil people until we don't want them anymore yeah. Yeah. as well as the fact that once we have these friends that are producing all this supply yeah. we then have the ability to get a ton of money into these shadowy organizations that's off the books yeah so the um uh, th- th- we did this a ton of different times. I'm going to f- uh, fo- uh, briefly do a brief aside on the most popular one, which is Manuel Noriega. Motherfucking Noriega. Noriega. So uh, Manuel Antonio Noriega was um, a School of the Americas trained Panamanian army officer. Um, he with his uh his uh, fellow School of the Americas uh, classmate uh, Omar Torrios overthrew President uh, Arnulfo Arias in 1968. Uh, Torrios uh, became... He never recalled himself president. It was like master liberator of the Panamanian people or something like that. That's fucking cool. He he took a very weird (laughs) name. I should have have written it down, but I forgot. He learned that at his Um, alma mater. Yeah. Uh, But when Torrios died in a plane crash in 1981, that was definitely not a political assassination. Um, Noriega, um, who had been the chief of military intelligence of the Panamanian army, took power. Um, So, whereas... Uh, Torrios did a lot of like land reform stuff and uh, or uh, arranged for the um, eventual repatriation of the Panama Canal Zone back to Panama, which uh, completed in 1999. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, right. So he did those two things and then died in a plane crash. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, which uh, you usually die in a plane crash after you do some land reform, right? Uh, so nope, ideally before, but yeah, if, yeah. But- yeah. 
after yeah. if, you know, yeah. if need be. Uh, so Noriega, uh, he calls himself president. Noriega was a, stan- a staunch anti-communist um, and definitely a CIA asset. Like, that's in his uh, obituary. Like, the BBC obituary that I read had him, like, they said, like, CIA asset. Cool. So, that, that's not... Um, uh, that's in- not a conspiracy it's not, it's, That's yeah. not contested. Uh, he was... In, yeah, and he, he was uh, um, involved in the CIA for something like 30 years. I mean, he, he was trained at the School of the Americas. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's really he's all our you boy. need to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Eventually, you just get redundant. So, yeah. So, Noriega's Panama was essentially a, a, um, a hub for U.S. clandestine operations in South America uh, that, w- that needed to be funded with drug money, right? So, for example, Iran-Contra um, uh, 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 was uh, funded, th- had connections to the Panamanian um, government through, uh, so that they could... Uh, yeah, sell arms to the Iranian Khomeini government. Yeah, so let me get this straight. The uh, yeah. whole Iran-Contra thing was Panamanian coke to uh, sell in the U.S. to get money to buy um, uh, arms to fund the Contras. And then how is Iran tied into it again? So the Iran-Contra affair was a situation where um, uh, the Khomeini government of Iran was under an arms embargo. Uh, so you, uh, uh, um, but we basically sold them weapons anyway. Um, and then the money that was collected from selling arms to the Khomeini government, uh, the, the, that went into uh, arming the, uh, or funding the Contras and their kind of like dirty drug war against the Sandinista uh, government, yeah, in, in yeah, Nicaragua, in Nicaragua. And you also were not; we were also not allowed to fund the Contras after right. an, by an act of Congress. Yeah, ah. so he was really uh, breaking the law on two fronts. Yeah, illegally selling arms and illegally funding a guerrilla group. Yeah. So um, a little bit later, under George H. W. Bush's presidency, remember, the first CIA director to become president, uh, Noriega was uh, essentially, like, found to be do- having the same deal with too many other governments and organized crime syndicates. So, he- he's not, um, so we-, we have to take him out, because he's not uh, um, our man anymore. He's his own free agent. And so, um, this is where Jimmy Carter becomes useful, because now that Jimmy Carter has, like, taken, like, after... He left the White House. He, he started this role as essentially like a uh, uh, blessing different governments' elections, right? Um, and saying whether or not that they were legitimate or not. That's oh, just yeah, a, th- a thing that. that Jimmy Carter gets to do yeah, now. Yeah, that and build houses for the homeless. Right, yeah. Um, so Jimmy Carter um, just says, oh, yeah, the, the, um, uh, the Panamanian election was a fraud, and uh, which it probably was, but uh, uh, but he says it out loud, which uh, allows the U.S. to carry out what they call Operation Just Cause, Oof. as in like a just cause <laughs> eviction. Yeah, yeah. Um, Operation We Were Justified. Yeah, yeah. So Operation Just Cause um, it kills about three thousand civilians from airstrikes from the U.S. military. They um, capture Noriega and put him on trial, where a federal court, um, like, brings him up for for drug charges. 
Like, like this is this is why you don't be friends with the United States, yeah. man, because they're fucking fake friends. Like again, this is the leader of a country. Whether or not he became that leader in like a good way, a democratic way or not, this is this man is recognized around the world as the leader of the country. We bombed it, captured him, brought him back to our country, and tried him for domestic on for domestic, domestic charges. Crime. Yeah, and, and and then um and Noriega was like, "Well, you told me to do this." Like the C, like I was working with you guys in the CIA for thirty years, and the judge says no CIA evidence is admissible. Um, in, in, in his own, def- in his that's cold. Fake yeah. friends, that's fake cold friends. As ice. So he uh, he get he goes to jail and he gets out for good behavior. <laughs> nice. In, in in like for like in like seventeen years. At- I don't understand how he can be convicted of crimes that he didn't commit in the United States. Like, how is that I- possible? Yeah uh the government powerful <laughs> have weapons <laughs> I mean, we're still trying to do it to julian assange right for just yeah. being a journalist yeah and he's australian well julian <laughs> assange shared like united states military documents that's a crime like at least that's a crime that like but exists in the united states yeah but he's not an american I mean, national yeah, yeah yeah i guess i don't know um Whatever. The laws are dumb <laughs> they are <laughs> So he, um, uh, so when he gets out, uh, the uh, a French court immediately uh, arrests him, uh, and he gets put in jail again. This time for something that the French uh, said that he did some some crime. Um, uh, uh, I, I think. Can you imagine if Joe Biden got kidnapped by some other country, right, and tried based on committing crimes like I don't know, like nepotism or whatever. And just then they just put him in jail. Yeah. That would be so cool. And then he gets and then he gets out and then another country is like, We're gonna arrest you for like stealing ice cream or something. Yeah, and they put him in jail again. He he gets out of French jail and gets repatriated back to Panama, where he spends some time suing Activision uh for using his likeness in Call of Duty Black Ops no Two. Way. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, he called it defamation. What a boss. Uh because he, he was portrayed as a kidnapper, murderer, and enemy of, of the state. Uh those that's like lo- I'm a CIA asset. Yeah. Just paint an accurate picture. It's still a gripping story. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put some respect on my name. Yeah. So that's um so yeah, uh, um he died in Panama of a brain hemorrhage in twenty seventeen. Rest uh, in power. <laughs> Um. Yeah. So, so the, 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 this is a good example of like how cartels would take control over an area, um, uh, take a lucrative crop, right? That that is otherwise bombarded by you by the United States, unless someone powerful enough to hide it from the United States or is in cahoots with the United States to play both sides can like move the crop to someplace safe to then sell. Uh, usually to. the united states right um so this is really just like a way to to constant to like reorient these really valuable uh, in-demand uh substances a study of uh 22 of of 2200 rural municipalities in mexico from 1990 to 2010 found that the uh that the lower prices of corn um uh cultivation uh followed uh, the increased cultivation of opium and cannabis. So this is how NAFTA comes into play, right? So after all of these 
clandestine operations where we're just like fucking up all these different countries uh uh, uh crops f- of coca and marijuana and all this stuff right they're obviously going to turn to if you're going to grow something you're going to grow food but then we we institute nafta which re- just the price of every staple crop just falls in in canada united states and mexico and so what they do is they decide to start selling drugs because that isn't subject to nafta tariff, uh, nafta agreements so um uh the authors of that of that study that found that you know you, after corn prices go down they they start selling uh or growing opium and, and cannabis they also found that nafta provided both the infrastructure and the labor pool to facilitate drug smuggling because you you've created all the price controls that make sense to start selling drugs and then you also like have a bunch of people who are out of business or out of business and out of work who really need a job and they'll become drug mules for you so um yeah uh and so at at home meanwhile uh the comprehensive drug abuse uh prevention and control act that Brittany briefly mentioned right that as the name implies um combined all previous uh drug laws into a comprehensive statute uh, it also created security requirements for legal drugs and made the schedule system for illegal drugs. Yep. And it also, if correct me if I'm wrong, created the uh, mandatory sentences and also like various policies that yes. led It recodified to- the mandatory sentences that I yeah. discussed earlier in mm-hmm. those acts from the 1950s. Yeah. 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 So Title II of that law was passed the next year. That's just called the Controlled Substances Act. Um, it creates this, th- that is what actually creates the schedules of controlled substances. And it, it also creates the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, also known as the Schaefer Commission, after its chairman, Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer. Uh, and their job is to study cannabis abuse in the United States. Now, remember, 1971, we're now already um, uh, basically all uh, research into marijuana is dried up because you can't own it. Um, uh, the study, uh, um, rele- the the commission released its findings, um, uh, and, and uh, but right before they did, the office of the Secretary of Health suggested that pot be put in the newly created Schedule One category. That's the worst, most restrictive one, because um, it's highly addictive, right? And yeah. Highly dangerous, and, and has no medical uh, has no medical benefit. Medical benefit. That's what's that's the definition of Schedule One, right? Uh, so they said, we'll just keep it in, in Schedule 1 until this Schaefer report comes out with its findings, and then we'll reevaluate. Schaefer report, titled Marijuana, A Signal of Misunderstanding, um, <laughs> suggested ending the prohibition of marijuana, um, It was uh, and that it basically was not, har- really, like, not very harmful, It and, uh, it, and it's all a big misunderstanding. It's cool. Everybody who smokes yeah. it is cool. Um um, this was opposed by the Congressional Subcommittee chaired by Senator James Eastland. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows who James Eastland is. Um, he is a absolutely rabid racist and segregationist. Uh, he literally owned a Mississippi cotton plantation uh, at the time. <laughs> yeah. And he was very, very close with the FBI director, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Of course he was. Um, uh, and, uh, and that was good because uh, Hoover helped him get out of hot water when Robert F. Kennedy, as Attorney General, um, found that Eastland was among uh, several members of Congress who had started receiving uh, money and favors by Rafael Trujillo, a.k.a. El Jefe, the dictator of the Dominican Republic and longtime CIA asset. So, another... uh, um, uh, Plot thickens. Yeah. So, um, 
this is also when we formed the DEA in 1973. Uh, this enforces, um, along with the FDA, uh, a lot of the stuff in the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, it organizes uh, the country into 21 domestic field divisions, and those divisions along the southern border are very small and focused. Whereas, like, the so, like, San Diego has its own division, but then, like, the Chicago division stretches from North Dakota to Indiana. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Does the DEA replace the Federal Bureau of Narcotics? Yeah, I, bel- like I believe a... it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the DEA has a has a budget of three billion dollars. Uh, to become an agent of the DEA, you need a relevant bachelor's degree with a two point nine five minimum GPA. Wow. Um, unless you have law enforcement experience, the average annual salary, according to ZipRecruiter, of a DEA agent is eighty two thousand dollars. Damn. Damn. So these are like the smart cops. No, the, <laughs> well, some of them at least. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, maybe. G, what was that GPA? Hit me with that. Two point nine five. Okay. That's probably still too high to be a cop. <laughs> it might be actually. Yeah, yeah. It might be. But you know, you can also be in there for law enforcement. So it's a mixed. It's a mixed group. Yeah. So remember, um, uh, how I said, you know, like on the southern side of the border, the Mexican army becomes sort of like a big cartel uh, player in marijuana. On the north side of the border. Uh, there's a ton of different organizations uh, that uh, become sort of uh, semi, you know, a cartel that has like some legitimate authority, like in government and, and some uh, um, extra legal authority. Uh, a big one on our side of the border is the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office. So um, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office has a, a problem to this day of gangs within the organization itself. Um, a, uh, a study found that there's at least 18 of them that carry out murders and drug trafficking schemes. It, um, uh, way back in the, uh, uh, during the, the uh, lead up to uh, the Manson murders, mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office um, did a raid on the, um, on the ranch that, that the family lived in. Mm. This huge raid where they arrested nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, took nothing from the ranch, mm-hmm. but it was just this enormous raid. Uh, and and um, uh, Tom O'Neill, in his book Chaos, um, makes has a lot of good evidence to show that what they were really doing is covering up. They knew that Mason um, Charles Manson was um, going to eventually like fuck up and like get and get caught in something that they couldn't uh, do the usual catch and release relationship that they had with Manson, mm-hmm. where like the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office would regularly either get uh, a complaint from the ranch or um, uh, accusing Manson himself of like uh, uh, of uh, uh, rape and lots of other like yeah, highly he was violent crimes. Times on rape, yeah, yeah and uh, and they would just con- they would release him all, all the time. Man, RMK Ultra episode is going to rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, they, they also like the CIA was plying him with acid. Yes, uh, along That's with why like I say the yeah. 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 All right, sorry, I won't, I won't go away too, too many. Uh, yeah. So well, I mean, so just basically that uh, the uh, the the lasso, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, like clearly has like a, a, a like a drug running uh, like organized crime unit within it that is um, con- just constantly uh, doing shit, and uh, and still to this day. In 2018, uh, Mark Antrim, a, uh, uh, a Los Angeles sheriff's uh, deputy, uh, in full uniform, in a cru- in a cruiser, in a marked cruiser, uh, stole half a ton, half a ton 
of legal weed, along with $645,000 at gunpoint. Jesus Christ. Um, from, from a, uh, um, a, a warehouse. Um, Damn. Where, you know, Did he, he carry it all out? Uh, he had, like, help with, like, five other Okay, uh, so it was a, a big operation. Yeah. That's a lot of bags. Yeah, where he, like, <laughs> at... duffel bags. Yeah, where he, like, <laughs> that's, at... It's still two th- 200 pounds a dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, at... Well, at gunpoint, he said, this is a raid. Showed his badge. Yeah. And he's like, I'm obviously a sheriff's officer. There's my cruiser. Uh, we're gonna take all of this. Yeah. And just... And just... And, and, and took all of it. Um... He was eventually arrested and uh, um, and is going to serve time, but like he's part of their anti-gang detail, so gang you know, it was a good reason why he always hangs out with you know people that are in gangs. Um, and so now, uh, where I'll leave it is that uh, from 1980 to 2005, the number of people in U.S. prisons and jails on drug charges increased by 1,100 percent. Holy shit! Uh, as of February 2014. Um, a little bit more than half, 50.1% of all federal inmates were imprisoned on drug charges. Um, there, uh, there were 1,155,610 drug-related arrests overall last year, with cannabis sales and possession busts accounting for just over 30% uh, of those cases. This is w- when weed is becoming very legal, as we're about to find out. And the vast majority were for marijuana possession alone. FBI data shows that there was a cannabis arrest every 90 seconds in the country in 2020, and there was a drug-related arrest every 27 seconds. That's fucking crazy. Because as we're about to get into, in 2020, the majority of states have at least partial legality for this plant. And, like, it's still at that clip. Like, that is fucking nuts. Oh, and that that is actually a huge dip. So, it, it is an improvement. That we are only arresting people every 90 seconds for marijuana possession, that is a marked improvement (sighs) attributed to both COVID and um, legalization. Absolutely fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, this comes to my part, uh, wherein I, you know, am the bringer of good news. Uh, Good vibes. Goodness and light. You know, all Bad things also have to come to an end eventually. <laughs> Hopefully. At least, Hopefully. At least we yeah. would hope. Uh, in the case of marijuana prohibition, it looks like that end is actually really in sight. Um, as uh, you've both uh, explained so well, America has been uh, pretty front and center in the global war on drugs and um, the prohibition of uh, controlled substances in general. And uh, America is uh, basically losing its credibility to scare people and other governments into um, prohibiting cannabis because basically we are slowly stopping doing it here. Uh, So there's a handy uh, shout out to Wikipedia once again, uh, (laughs) map on Wikipedia that has a uh, pretty much live updated uh, global map of all of the legality. Wikipedia has some excellent maps, by the way, for folks looking at like global trends. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, uh, It's, Pretty fucking awesome. Uh, and it really explains, like, it's got colors here. Blue is for legal. Orange is for illegal but decriminalized. Uh, pink is illegal but often unenforced. Red is illegal and enforced. And then uh, gray is legality unknown. And that's Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. If you smoke pot in Antarctica, do you get arrested? Yeah. There's no police. Yeah, yeah. It's a lawless frontier. 
there's an awesome chart and there's also a table that you can sort and you can sort it by legality for recreational and for medicinal use. So for the purpose of this, I'm going to sort it by recreational use because that's like the most liberal use. If it's liberal, if it's uh, legal for recreational, it's obviously legal for medicinal. And uh, the countries currently that have legal recreational cannabis are South Africa, Mexico, Malta, Georgia, Uruguay, and Canada. And um, I think Urugu- that's it. No, yeah. no, there's a couple more. Oh, okay. Um, Ur- Uruguay uh, was the first. I believe so. Uh, Uruguay did it when uh, the UN would still like sanction you for. Uh, oh, really? Le- for having legal weed. Yeah, yeah, they legalized back in 2013. And so there's a bunch of other cultural touchstones, namely the Netherlands, which since 1972 has uh, had loosened its prohibition laws and essentially made it like essentially unenforced for specific sale at coffee shops. And so these were both places where... Spain is the same way, isn't it? Yeah, Spain decriminalized uh, the use and possession in private areas and allowed for uh, people to uh, consume. And public possession and consumption can result in a fine, but cultivation for personal use is allowed in private areas, including cannabis social clubs. Which yeah. sounds pretty fucking dope. It does sound very cool. Any Spanish listeners, let us know about the cannabis social clubs. Yeah, well, our friend, uh, our friend who's from Spain, used to talk about like cannabis culture in Spain, and it's very cool. He was like, "You can you can grow plants on your front porch. Like, you can. There are there are like bars and clubs where you know you can buy joints. Like, pretty cool. Hell yeah! And then I've also um, smoked legal or basically permitted um, cannabis in Copenhagen, specifically in Freetown Christiania. Oh, yeah. So Copenhagen has... Uh, Aptly you know, named. Yeah. So Freetown Christiania is like an anarchist enclave in an ex-military base uh, in Copenhagen. It's a neighborhood wherein basically the police don't enforce any laws at all. They don't go in there. There's been a long history of like street battles and stuff. We've talked about It's like about an them. autonomous zone, yeah. Yeah. It's basically like Chaz but like uh a lot more established <laughs> and so they have this thing called pusher street wherein like the cops have basically just allowed for all the cannabis use and sale just be concentrated in this one area that they is essentially self-policing mm-hmm. in uh various ways like you for example can't run there uh because people will stop you and yeah. assume that you're you know like have just robbed somebody or something mm-hmm. um and uh can so, you jog i know i've asked this question before <laughs> i know but you can bicycle so you could totally hypothetically rob somebody and ride away on a bike we've had this exact conversation <laughs> on the show before <laughs> all right and then uh now turning to like american legalization mm-hmm. um it's actually interesting doing research on this because almost every single article about it was extremely out of date like there is a rapid decriminalization slash legalization slash recreational adult use legalization process happening in like all the states and uh, so there's a map that i had and i'll put the sh- a link in the show notes that is once again being live updated and currently there's only six states that actually have any full have full illegal status for cannabis do you know what states idaho kansas uh nebraska north carolina south carolina and wyoming everywhere else 
has some form of legal weed. And it's extremely variegated. So yeah. without like just doing a ton of info dumping on you guys of like every single state and how it all happened. Uh, essentially, in the 70s, there were like a handful of states that did some level of decriminalization. And that was basically like, you know, before the uh, I think it's like state like police or whatever wouldn't be doing enforcement on like personal use. I think Alaska was one of them, a couple other uh, states, but it was really in 1996 when um, proposition 212, I think uh, was passed by California. Mm -hmm. That was when medical marijuana in California was like first legalized. And then in 2012 there, Colorado passed a, uh, legal recreational law yeah and that had to do with like the obama presidency presidential election as well like they they tried to tie that in to get like sort of a blue wave of it was um, a ballot line it was wasn't it like it was its own yeah it was basically like a democratic party like turn out the vote in colorado like effort it's a good fucking idea um it's a really good idea and when it happened people were like oh this is gonna like change everything and like all of the um the fear-mongering that had been done by politicians for like decades about like this is going to increase you know um uh child drug use and like everything else well it all ended up turning out totally false like yeah. there was a period of time wherein, like you know, the the state legislator had to get all of its ducks in order. I think it was like sixteen months or so that they like figured out how they were going to do it. But they did all this preparation to do what they could to like mitigate any type of like potential harm. But essentially, in drug induced driving incidents didn't go up at all. Um, there was like actually a turn down in self reported teen like pot use apparently like it losing its cachet once yes, it becomes like cool. yeah yeah i mean like once dad can go into a store that looks like an <laughs> like a apple store and like buy something called like uh og uh sandals or whatever you know like the, <laughs> you know like uh, og boat shoes yeah right yeah yeah <laughs> And there was also a ton of fear mongering when I remember when Colorado legalized around like, what are the feds going to do? Like the feds are just going to like, you know, storm Colorado and like, you know, with tanks and like shut down all their legal lead facilities. I mean, they should do that, but for a different reason. Well, well it, it, it's funny because like they also said, you know, like, well, if we don't get rid of these DEA laws, like any change in administration would like lead to potentially like draconian crackdowns. And it like could. This. That could and still happen. Yep. It could still happen. But I just want to point out that like it, the last Fed raids on uh legal grow ops i think was in california by the the dea under obama and it was uh basically raiding like some medicinal grow ops i think just to sort of flex i think and that that was like the last sort of like gasps of you know um uh the feds trying to you know interdict on you know state legal pot yeah. like production um, but you know, it could happen. Brandon could, you know, he famously fired a bunch of, uh, his staffers, uh, for admitting that they, he said he pot. didn't support federal yeah. removal of cannabis as a schedule one drug. Like he yeah. said that during the election, it, it, which was, I don't understand what, who that scores you any fucking points with. Like, yeah, but I don't think whatever he, his elders. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I don't know. I think that it might score points with like powerful lobbies, like uh, the alcohol yeah. lobby. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, this Harper's uh, uh, article is like pretty interesting. They, we'll leave the, the, the link in the show notes. It, the pros sent me a little bit, <laughs> like often, but one of the things that they, uh, they, they talk about is sort of the, um, the potential like downsides of legalization of like all drugs, which they both argue for and argue like, or at least warn against the unintended consequences of in the same breath yeah i, th- I think there they look at port what happened in portugal when they yes d- uh, decriminalized pretty much everything and then yes. they do mention like looking at teenagers uh, because they're kind of like a bellwether of whether or not everyone else is going to like go nuts with drugs right and and there was like that little blip of like increase like you were saying chris like it goes up and then it goes down as it becomes less like the novelty wears off and it's just like less uh uh, exciting yeah it's not verboten and at portugal it was actually an extremely interesting case study in this conversation about like legalizing all drugs mm-hmm. because that's essentially what they did they basically decriminalized the use of like all drugs including hard drugs heroin etc and what they uh, saw was that public health outcomes across the board went way up yeah. there was a weird thing where like muggings went up by 66 percent, but like all other crime associated with drugs like went down so i don't know what to do with that statistic i was like huh maybe i guess if you know people are more likely to have drugs on them or maybe you're more likely to mug them yeah or (laughs) or or, or those people were getting mugged already but now that it's not decriminalized yeah oh that yeah yeah, that makes of course a lot of sense yeah but now that it's not illegal to have what they got stolen from them yeah yeah Yeah. that's very that's very good point but you know it basically like having safe injection sites as soon as people are uh you know known users having like you know uh, mental health check-ins basically people uh trying to see if they can ease toward care as opposed to like punish and it's generally working pretty well yeah um and so you know i think that that's something that we could go to as a country but the article also brings up a bunch of uh potential hypothetical downsides for if we were to be you know pretty laissez-faire about our uh drug laws which is to say the profit motive might set in and create uh industries that play on heavy addiction and like that's probably not as big of an issue with pot because it isn't like a physically addictive substance but like you'd see what you know the for-profit industry in america has done with like alcohol well there's a difference between decriminalization Mm -hmm. and allowing corporate interests to advertise heroin Mm -hmm. like i mean if it's not an industry because it's not legal for it to be an industry Mm -hmm. then i think you don't really have to worry about that so much um yeah but like they, they talked about a bunch of different uh, options. Like you could have um, state monopoly on drug, you know, like production and disbursement. A lot like we do. With- I like that. I like the like New Hampshire liquor model where there's just like little state or federal stores that you can go to. Yep. Safe get, injection get, sites. Get but at yeah. the same time, that doesn't keep Smirnoff from like putting like half naked women on giant billboards and like getting but people. But Smirnoff is legally allowed to advertise. Yeah, You exactly. wouldn't allow a distributor of drugs to advertise. Or I, I, I wouldn't in my personal. Sure, sure. But maybe not the distribution, but the production, the branding, the, the use of it becomes more mainstream and the uh, making it like Allowing a profit interest to push a society to use drugs more heavily so that they can make more money is, like, probably not what we would want either. No. Like, yeah, you know. Sure. But, but we also, like, we don't let alcohol companies, like, 
advertise well, in a lot of venues. Well, and we have specific and, laws. And like different, we don't, different states have different laws about it. And, yeah. like, tobacco companies can't advertise cigarettes anymore. It, it, These are too cool. Have you ever noticed Way that you cool. never see anybody actually drinking alcohol on TV? Right, yeah. And an know. ad? Yeah. It's illegal to show, show. the actual consumption of alcohol. That's the problem, is that the laws around it are so stupid, they don't make any fucking sense. (laughs) You can advertise beer on a on a billboard on a busy highway, which I don't think that billboard should be legal either, but, you know, like, it doesn't... If we were to allow for the, like, extreme liberalization of access to hard drugs, Uh it wouldn't have to look like alcohol, because we could just write sensible laws that don't allow them to brand themselves and advertise themselves and, like, draw on any kind of, like, cool cultural cachet or something for wanting to do them. Like, it could be a very Spartan experience you know where you just walk into something that looks like an apple store and shoot up and go about your day um (laughs) yeah like an adult for me personally the question of drug criminalization i'm no i'm no anarchist no nobody listening to this would mistake me for one i don't think but i can't understand a philosophy of law that says that you should restrict what someone is allowed to put in their own body i don't understand that doesn't make any sense to me like my body is the only thing that I really truly own in any meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. And I can't put whatever I want in it. Yeah. I can't decide when I want it to stop working. So that's absurd. You basically have a usufruct yeah, like idea of everything but your body. Destructus is okay for the self. Yeah. Okay. It's my body. I should be able to poison it and and kill it and whatever I want with it. it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think I agree with you here. I think that, like, ultimately, state uh, intervention to keep people from imbibing or taking intoxicants is both a practical failed enterprise, right? Yeah, the state should require producers of products to accurately label them and warn me of the consequences Mm -hmm. of ingesting them and what all could happen. I think that that is appropriate, but I like the state's main purpose should be like stopping individuals from inflicting harm on each other or Mm. entities from inflicting harm. Mm. Like if I'm inflicting harm on myself, that's my fucking business. Yeah. I I, I could see the, 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 the slippery slope there. When when you started saying that, it was like, what what about vaccines? How is what was the vaccine <laughs> like? Uh, and all, all I could think of is is just like there. I don't think the state should forcibly vaccinate. People. No, no, I, I don't really either. But I, I well, no, I kind of do. But um, the I, I I think there are kind of like limits to like maybe not um actively like arresting people if like you smoke a joint next to a kid but like if a kid is found to be like neglected and you know like drugs getting involved, a kid high but, yeah well, we already have lots but of we have laws against that. like yeah, neglecting like, that's kids illegal. yeah just yeah, like yeah. don't no, don't need neglect kids it doesn't matter if you're sober when you did or not yeah, yeah. so i get yeah okay i guess i take that back yeah i'm just trying to think of like what are instances where your decision on your about yourself impacts others who did not have a say in well, your, for your, example, your, your choice. And like that, the that's The international really drug the, trade is really the yeah, heart of it. Yeah. I, outside of that, I, I can't really think of anywhere yeah. that my decision to ingest anything right. affects anyone else. Yeah. yeah. 
and and you know, speaking to operating pots, a car. Yeah. yeah. Well, but okay. we already have laws against right. that. Yeah. And like, also, yeah. like the problem is, you know, the driving. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, the problem is the driving. Yeah. So, yeah. like, let's get rid of that. Yeah. Drunk <laughs> driving is fine. You heard it here first. Folks. No. No. Just you know, I'm just saying it's like <laughs> the problem is is the driving part of the drunk driving. You know. Yeah. Like you're not going to kill anybody for like having a, a couple pops at home and not driving a car no <laughs> um but yeah so uh as it relates to to the weed um the like one of the things about this international drug trade for example that can be solved but is like in it, it's definitely a bone of contention amongst the state legalizing process is home grow right because if people are allowed to, to grow at home then you basically allow them to produce and imbibe an intoxicant that they have complete control over, which takes the whole onus of like checking for your, for purity and doing like, you know, various stuff completely off of the state. It's like basically a free, you know, uh, process as far as the state goes. The only downside is that there's no revenue associated with it. Yeah. So yeah. you don't get the taxes and you don't, you know, create jobs necessarily, except in all of the lights and like fans and like, yeah. you know, all <laughs> the stuff that you'd need to actually do it well. Um, the Taco Bells. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a the whole element of... Um, but, like, uh, most people are not going to grow their own weed. Because growing your own weed is a pain in the ass. Growing your own good weed is an even more of a pain in the ass. Yeah. It's time-intensive. It's resource-intensive. Yeah. Uh, like, the vast majority of people in a society in which all forms of cannabis are legal are still going to prefer buying it. And especially getting their treats, their little gummies and their vapes and their, you know... They're little cutesy things. Like people yeah. like that shit. So I mean, I don't really think that the state has much to fear from home grow, personally. Um, well, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a really good point. I guess I'm viewing it from like the side itching to home grow. Yeah, you but know? you are a doer. You're a gardener. You're a brewer. Yeah, you, like DIY do or all die. your own shit. Yeah, yeah. Most and, people are not like you. And also, um, there's like all with the whole industry. There's like various methods that are like sort of. I think tech technically and like medically potentially dubious as to like how the production of various things is done like there's this thing called bho or butane hot oil and it's a way of like making concentrates and basically you like heat up butane and you use the hydrocarbon to basically dissolve all the terpenes and like um uh trichomes and stuff off of the canvas plant and then extract it using like a vacuum pump and like splatter it onto like some ptfe film that you can like clean up and oh, things that i totally understand yeah and then there's this this is basically how you get the concentrate for your vape pen yeah Yeah. and like you know that's not probably that good for you there's probably like a bunch of trace shit going on there i'm like highly sus about all of that i mean i'm drinking a mike's harder strawberry (laughs) lemonade right now so yeah i'm sure that there are plenty of people who are concerned about that lots of crunchy folks yeah but like the truth is we are constantly ingesting dangerous like fake shit all the time and yeah. we're rubbing our bodies all up in it and how much of what i'm wearing is polyester right now like, yeah we're all just walking around in plastics drinking plastics eating plastics yeah. uh all the time so like yeah i guess i don't find that a very compelling argument well it, uh, one of the things that that was pointed out in this article is that like when it comes to to weed legalization because of the federal ban on it because the federal ban on a lot of research there it's being legalized without the other due process or like you know sort of like uh due diligence that other drugs and pharmaceutical products get by through the FDA or like, sure. you know, being purity tested and various standards applied, et cetera. And in, uh, in often cases, like 
it's going directly from this legacy market, like production chain to a medical dispensary. And so it's like every weed is different. There's different strains, like, you know, the state and the regulatory industries as a whole on a federal level are like totally missing the boat with any type of like regulatory consistency and or like, you know, uh, supervision of any of this. I think that that's probably something that should be left to the states anyway, at least until the federal government can maybe get some of the other shit that's under their control. Uh, working a little more smoothly. I mean, a like, fair. I think state regulation is perfectly reasonable. And I think, you know, there's a most reasonable, level-headed people understand when they walk into a dispensary that when you buy bud, what you're getting is fairly natural. It's a plant. Yeah. And when you buy a THC cartridge, what you're getting is a highly processed substance. But even that fairly natural plant thing, like... Was there pesticide use? Well, probably like, less than there was when you were getting it illegally. Probably. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Like, the point I guess I'm saying is that it's a relatively unregulated process, except by the states, which means that it's sort of hit and miss depending on where you're at with how much the state is going to like put effort into making sure that poisonous materials aren't, you know, being put into the production and cultivation of this. Mm -hmm. And when you have the profit motive behind, you know, like, look at what we do with our food agriculture. Right. And like that stuff's quote unquote above board, but still like really crazy. I mean, dis d d dispensaries live on repeat customers. Yeah. I, I doubt that they're going to want to kill people. Yeah. And the other um, thing about the home grow thing is that it builds a uh, distributed gift economy throughout because even in Massachusetts, for example, where they legalize the ability to like, you know, grow six plants at home, you can grow six big plants. And I think it's 12 plants per household if you have two adults in it. You could grow 12 big plants and that that's totally legal and you can't sell it but there's nothing against giving it away so if you go to massachusetts the price for like uh weed uh you know like through the legacy market uh has essentially collapsed which is pretty cool because it means that like there's abundant grass and people are like basically giving it to their friends the same way that they would like you know cookies or like you know uh strawberry rhubarb pie that they grew in their backyard yeah and like i think that's fucking cool yeah, like it's very cool uh, it, it is going to be interesting to see what happens to all of those uh massachusetts legal weed dispensaries once new york has full uh, legal dispensaries they're gonna be fucked they're, the ones, yeah, the ones right fall. on the border yeah, are gonna have a tough just time absolutely fall apart yeah, yeah. It's, it's gonna be really interesting um yeah. and the you know the, the the battle over how much to tax it so that you know people prefer the retail establishment versus the legacy market it, it's all sort of a balancing act that's getting like figured out in real time um and yeah i don't know like uh personally i've been a cannabis user for you know a very long time since i was probably like 19 i've been like on average using it every single day and uh it's really comforting to be able to talk about that openly yeah now. like i'm i there it wasn't much of an event when it happened in new york state because covid lockdowns and a bunch of other things yeah. just sort of happened it was like suddenly like we could walk around with up to what was it three ounces on our person yeah. all of a sudden yeah. you could sit out front of a bar and yeah. smoke a joint like yeah. overnight that yeah. just became and like it, allowed and i would like go downtown and there so like a dude would come to me like you want a gram you want a gram I'm like what like yeah. i was like like being sold weed just on the street <laughs> At a, from a complete stranger at, out of nowhere. I'm just like, I have long hair, but I actually don't need weed right now. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, was it good? Yeah, right. No, like, no, they, 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 they profiled me correctly. 
<laughs> but I just didn't need any right now. But I got to say, just, you know, well, speaking from personal uh, standpoint, one of the risks and uh, issues with long-term cannabis use is inhaling a bunch of burning plant matter, which like fucks up it's the alveoli your, yeah. in your lungs, irritates your throat. It's, uh, you know, potentially carcinogenic, like in the sense of, you know, oral cancers and stuff like that. But again, we don't know that. We don't because, know that. Because... Uh, they took all of the weed and put it into University of Mississippi yeah. and didn't let anyone research it, do any research on it. Uh, unless, of course, it was like something to like decide if weed gave you uh, brain cancer or something like that. They would let you only, really only research it for like, like if you said, I'm looking for really bad stuff or something like that. They, they, were, they were pretty close. But, but I, I, one other thing I forgot to mention about that is we were talking about the quality of stuff you know, uh, of weed under different regulatory environments is... Uh, um, I think it was like 2015 or 16 uh, researchers that were able to get their hands on the weed were saying that um, it was moldy. So it was like, it wasn't, so like the one federally. They weren't even giving them fresh bud? <laughs> yeah, the one fe- federally regulated, like, okay weed uh, was, was bad. They like didn't was, have Boveda RH packets back no, then. No, You know, but, but now, now today's better. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what I was driving at is that actually my goal for 2022 is to not inhale any smoke at all. So I'm no longer smoking spliff. I'm no longer smoking weed. I'm just dabbing. And I make my dabs I at don't home. think that, dab, that dabbing is much better than smoking. Well, this is my, uh, you know, sort of criteria. I look at my water pipe, and it went from when I was even doing dry herb vaporizing, like a sort of browny, tarry color on the inside, and now it's like a frosted white. Okay. And so I don't know. Right. I don't know. I'm, you know, like that looks less damaging <laughs> to yeah, me. Yeah, no, but, probably. But basically, I make dabs just by taking a bud and pressing it between two heated aluminum uh, plates. No chemicals involved, no solvents, nothing crazy. I just have parchment paper and I scrape it up and take a little bit at night, put it in on a piece of hot titanium, breathe it in through a water pipe and like i'm good to yeah, go you're just breathing a bunch of metals it's fine <laughs> titanium is like yeah. pretty good at not off gas Me- metal, metals a chemical yeah, yeah exactly um i i think that for me one of the based on my own experience i started smoking pot when i was 15 and the only way to get it was to drive into the worst neighborhood in the city and stand outside and wait for someone to approach me or for me to grow the balls to approach someone else to try to buy weed And I remember very clear as day, the first time the guy that I bought weed from was like, hey, do you want some of these Xanax? And I was like, yeah, I'll take your Xanax. And then within a year, somebody had offered, like every time that I tried a new drug, it was offered to me by the person who was illegally selling me weed. So it is a gateway drug. Well, like it's the illegality (laughs) of it is absolutely a gateway to other illegal things. Like I probably never would have tried Coke if it wasn't for the fact that the guy who sold me weed one time was like, hey, I got some really nice blow in. Would you like some? Yes, I would. And I did. (laughs) And I liked it a lot. And I came back. But, you know, it's just like, like, you know, kids are more likely to do drugs than to drink alcohol because it's easier for them to get it. (laughs) You know, so. Yeah. um, yeah, I think I think it'd probably be better if weed was easily available to everyone. Yeah. And uh and Coke was really hard to get. Yeah. 
I well, think Coke would be a lot harder to get if weed was a lot easier to get. Oh, that's funny. The uh, Harper's article also had something that just sort of sent me, which was saying, like, uh, it was uh, Ehrlichman, I think, was the guy. And he was like, well, you know, there might be unintended consequences associated with legalizing a bunch of drugs. For example, alcoholics limit their consumption of alcohol because eventually they fall asleep. Cocaine solves that. <laughs> and cocaine addicts... <laughs> They have the issue of not being able to sleep. Alcohol solves Alcohol that. Solves that. <laughs> That's fucking funny as shit, man. Oh, my God. So, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know. I'm personally for the full uh, legalization and decriminalization of all drug use and treating drug addiction as a uh, mental or a uh, public health um, project. Um, wherein we, you know, give people literal support instead of putting them inside of a cage and force them to work for pennies. Um, and I think that, you know, this is something of like a built-in wildflower, which is to say like something that we believe and, you know, as a member of like, I guess the counterculture have believed is becoming more and more mainstream by the day. absolutely. And, you know, it's actual harm reduction is happening in real time. And I think that the easing up on prohibition and criminalization and punishment for cannabis is one of a few signs of like light in this dark hour. Yeah, I agree. And so, you know, maybe it can happen to a lot of things. And I could not have imagined the degree of legalization that we have now, even maybe like five or six years ago. Yeah, yeah. Like the idea that you could like that I could drive 45 minutes to buy a watermelon flavored (laughs) indica hybrid vape and the battery that goes with it. And a, and a bunch of gummies and some like pills that are supposed to make me smarter, all based in weed. Like that's that's pretty incredible. Like I didn't think that I thought even if we did get legalization, it would be a lot more, like I said, Spartan. You know, more blasé, more a little little less exciting. But hey, here we go. Good things really can't happen. Yeah. Well, that pretty much wraps up my section. All right. Um, all right. Well, thanks for listening to this bonus epi- episode of Iron Weeds. We hope you enjoyed it. And as the late and great Nate Dog would always say, hey, 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 smoke weed every day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Words to live by. Yeah. Thanks so much for your support. We are so grateful to you. Um, you are the reason that we we're able to do this. So two bonus episodes a month. Tell your friends and um, welcome to our new patrons. Thank you. All right. Take care of yourselves. We love you. Bye. Bye. Peace.